kind of person that loses stuff? Car keys, maybe a, uh, something that came in the mail, or a letter or something. Actually, what I want you to do is I want you to lean to the person next to you right now, and I want you to pick the person in your row most likely to lose something. Do that really fast. All right, raise your hand if you are that person and you are proud. Raise it. Look at the hands. Look, yes, we will unite. I am the person. I lose my car when I go to Wegmans. Am I the only one that does this? I, have, I literally have to park in the same spot every time or I will walk around for 20 minutes looking for my car. You know, that the, there are two kinds of things that we lose. The first is things that don't matter, things that can be easily replaced. We talked about car keys uh, uh, letter, different things like that. Things that really don't matter. There really isn't any consequence. But the things that do matter, the things that are valuable, the things that hurt when you lose them. Now those things, those things are the ones that separate from, from the others. Let me give you an example. Um, one of my favorite memories growing up was spending time with my uncle Bob. What was one of your favorite memories growing up? Who was the person that you liked spending time with? My uncle Bob always took me out to the porch whenever my parents would kick him out of the house so he had to smoke his pipe outside. Um, and uh, we would sit on the porch together and he would pull out of his pocket this pocket knife and he would, I always loved the smell of pipe tobacco, as was me, and uh, he would do that with his pipe and he would smoke his pipe. And then, it probably wasn't the healthiest thing, let's just admit that. But we would sit there, and then he would give me his knife, and in the time that it took him uh, to smoke his pipe, he would give me his knife to whittle. And we would just have these conversations, and he treated me like someone that was worth listening to, and he asked me very poignant questions. And I, I just had this great relationship with my Uncle Bob. In fourth grade, I'll never forget, after sitting there talking, he leaned over and he said, you know that knife? Why don't you keep that knife? So he gave me his knife. At some point, I lost it. A year later, I'll never forget my mom coming into my bedroom, tears in her eyes, telling me that my Uncle Bob had suddenly died of a heart attack at age 39. And I went looking for that knife, and I couldn't find it. A number of years later, I was crawling through an attic somewhere, looking through some boxes, and I just unexpectedly just found this knife. And I'm not a crying person. I just remember, like, just welling up with tears. Because it wasn't the knife. It was the person. It was the conversation. It was the investment. Now, losing something that doesn't matter, that doesn't hurt, but but losing something that does matter, that is important, that, that, that does matter. How many of you have ever, for those of you who have kids, how many of you have lost your kids before? <laughs> when we, our, church used, our church used to meet at the movie theater, and it was like a regular weekly occurrence. Who has the kids, right? And um, I remember one time Lisa and I were at this theme park in Cincinnati, Ohio, called King's Island. It was like Six Flags without the Jersey accent. And uh, we're walking around. Uh, we only had one kid at the time, our firstborn. She was about two and a half. 
Uh, and she was sitting in the stroller. We're walking around. Finally, we stop. It's the, the heat is blasting. We pull out this map. You know, for those of you who've been to the, you're pulling out this map and you're trying to find where you are. And then we looked at this map for about 30 seconds, and then we looked down, and she was gone. But we were in the kids' section, so we weren't that worried. We figured she's somewhere right around here. So we started looking around for a minute, couldn't find her. Two minutes, couldn't find her. Three minutes, couldn't find her. Four minutes later, which for those of you who have kids and you've lost them, is an eternity. Four minutes later, she was nowhere to be found. Lisa went that way, I went that way, and we began screaming bloody murder at the top of our lungs, screaming her name, grabbing people, asking for their help. I grabbed the security eye, and I said, lock the whole place down. Just literally shut up. I mean, I was going nuts. Seven minutes later, seven minutes later, I saw her big, fat, chubby legs coming down with a tube, and she was playing with other kids the whole time, bounced into the little balls of the bouncy thing, and we went and grabbed her, and I held on to her, that feeling in the pit of my stomach probably is the only thing that closely resembles to what God must have felt when Adam and Eve took their first step outside of the garden. They had this great setup. God told them, listen, as long as you stay within my protection, as long as you obey me, this place is going to be amazing for you. But the moment you disobey me, and this isn't because I'm trying to keep you from something, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to prevent a tremendous amount of heartache. The moment that you disobey me and my commandments is the moment you're going to have to leave because sin can't be in my presence. But if you keep my commandments, you will live in paradise. But whatever you do, don't disobey me because if you disobey, you will experience something that you have never experienced before. Pain, sickness, broken relationships, guilt, uncontrollable cravings for chocolate. People will, people will use one another, people will commit unspeakable acts towards one another, and you will experience for the first time despair and depression and anxiety because you are outside of my protection, and worst of all, you will die. And that's what happened. I don't know, probably about eight years ago, ten years ago, there was a little two-year-old boy wandered away from his parents in his backyard. His backyard uh, was connected to a forest. And his parents, an hour after they lost their two-year-old, back into the forest, they had enlisted every single family. Let me ask you this. If you lost your two-year-old, what would you be doing 30 minutes later? What would you be doing 60 minutes later? What lengths would, could someone possibly keep you from going to, finding for your two-year-old? The forest, I mean, the helicopters came in, everything. A few hours later, they found him cuddled up against a tree holding his cat. His cat had wandered out from the house. And that, that's exactly what happened with God. Adam and Eve left, and he busted out an, a search rescue that basically he ripped apart the universe to, find, to try to bring us back. He raised up Abraham to start a new people. I will bless people like the grains of the sand. There will be so many people that, come, that become blessed through you. But that didn't work. 
So he raised up Moses to give them a law to create a civil government to provide some stability, but that didn't work. And so he raised up prophet after prophet after prophet until there was one prophet that you probably know the name of. 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah gave a prophecy. Now listen, I want to talk to those, for you, those, uh, those of you for a moment who are here and you have a drug problem. Meaning that your wife drug you here, your, your people drug you here, right? And, and, you're, and let's be honest, you're just skeptical. Like you're here because it's a nice Christmas celebration, it's a meaningful thing to do for your family. But you have bigger and better fish to fry than to be giving any amount of time and energy to the God uh, pursuit. Please help me understand how what I'm about to read to you is an accident. 700 years before Jesus appeared on the scene, there was a person that talking to the eighth people in the 8th century, Isaiah said, you right now are distressed and hungry, you're going to roam through the land, you're famished, you're going to become enraged, you're going to look up, you're going to curse the king, you're going to curse God, and then you're going to look to the earth, and you're only going to know distress, darkness, fearful gloom, and you'll be thrust in the outer darkness. But 700 years from now, there's going to be a person that's going to come. And when that person comes, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which basically are old, like geographical markers for ancient Israel. And then he says, look at this, because you've heard this before. In the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations, the way by the sea, which is a road that goes from the Mediterranean, goes through the Jezreel Valley, just south of, south of Nazareth, on up to Tiberias, on up hitting Capernaum, where Jesus started his ministry, and then it went north. In other words, 700 years from now, exactly where Jesus was born and he started his ministry, what's going to happen? The people walking in darkness, though we have seen a great light, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. 700 years from now, you will have enlarged the nation, you will, meaning you will bring more people into the people of God, and what will happen? Their joy will be increased they will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. And then it says, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. Those of you who have been to church for a while, you might have heard that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a book called the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, in the sixth chapter, there's a story about a guy named Gideon. Gideon was raised up because the people of God in Israel were being attacked in the southeast. The Midianites were coming up from the southeast and literally killing and raping and pillaging God's people. God raises up Gideon and he says, I want you to raise up an army. So he raises up like 22,000 people, brings them before God, and God says, I actually think we have too many people. And Gideon's like, yeah, I think you're nuts. We actually are going against an army with 100,000 people. We need more people, not less. I need five times as many people. And God's like, no, 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 send half of them home. Half of them go home. And he got 11,000, 12,000 people before he sent half of them home. He keeps this up until only 300 people are left. And Gideon's like, oh, we're going to die. We are going to die. God says, I even have a better idea for your 300 people. In both hands, and what I want you to do is I want you to have them hold a torch 
And I want you to have them have a clay pot. These are the weapons that we're going to go to battle with. And Gideon's like, oh yeah, we're going to die. He said, but here's what I'm going to do. It's because I'm going to do this so you know that I am the Lord who gives you victory. He sends the 300 warriors to go and surround the Midianites at night when they're sleeping. When the signal came, they crashed their pots, waved their torches. The Midianites woke up, thought that they were being attacked, and then in the, case, the biggest case of friendly fire in the Old Testament, they attacked themselves. And the threat against God's people was ended, not because of the people's power, but because of God's power and his ingenuity. What this prophecy is saying is that as in the day of Midian's defeat, you, God, have shattered the yoke that burdens them. Undoubtedly, there are people here tonight that feel burdened by something. Something just isn't quite right with your life. All things are not as they should be. And what this prophecy is saying is at some point, someone's going to come along and shatter that yoke that has burdened you. That bar, the imagery is slavery, of a slavery getting beat across the back with a bar. The bar, across the shoulders, the rod of the oppressors, God is going to snap that bar. Just like it's a yoke, just like it's a bar. How is this, is going, how is this going to happen, Isaiah says? Here's how it's going to happen. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, <coughs> Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government, the thing that he is going to run. Peace, there will be no end to it. And so the fact that we're here, we're here today, 2,700 years later, from a prophecy that literally targeted exactly where Jesus was going to be, predicting exactly what he was going to do. We are living proof 2,700 years later that Christmas is the day when God's last-ditch rescue effort began. He became a human being, died on a cross, rose from the dead, and paid the price for you and I to be able to come back into his presence just like the Garden of Eden and to experience the Old Testament word shalom, the wholeness. The New Testament word would be the saving, sozo, being made whole, being forgiven, being restored. I mean, this is exactly what the angel said to Joseph. Joseph, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they are going to call him God with us. That's the name they're going to give him is that God is now with us. It's not a human being like Abraham or Moses or the prophets that are trying to save us, but God himself. So let me just say two things, okay? First is the, this. God went through all of this for you. Meaning that if you were the only person that walked off into the woods alone, if you were the only person that strayed, if you were the one sheep and the 99 were over here, he would still come after you. All of this still would have happened if you were the only person, the only person that was worth saving. 
And the second thing is that you can start your journey back home today. Can I just say something? Undoubtedly, there are people here who came on the shoulders of people who are committed Christians, meaning that you were invited and you're just sort of exploring Christianity. You might have like a slight interest in it and that sort of thing. I fully understand your drive right now is your career. I fully understand right now that there are goals that you have for your life, things that you want to accomplish. But here's what I want you to know. A couple weeks, we're starting a new series called Made for More, and we're going to be talking about that if all you do the rest of your life is pursue money and that vacation that you're going after, you are going to miss why you were put here on this planet. You are going to look back 20, 30, 40 years from now with a deep amount of regret because the thing that you were chasing, once you got and climbed up that ladder, you're going to realize it was parked against the wrong wall. There are things in your life that simply could be better because you were made for more. And I want you to come back and I want you to find hope in this series. I want you to know you can start this journey. The other thing, I think it's like four weeks from now, Justice Day, please come. Please get pictures of your kids with Mary Kamau. I remember when um, I was going to Princeton and I had an opportunity to go to a small gathering with Eli Wazell. Eli Wazell, if you don't know Eli Wazell, Eli Wazell uh, was in Auschwitz. He wrote a book called Night. And that evening that Lisa and I spent listening to Eli Wiesel talk about his experience in the concentration camp changed me. It marked me. It was one of the most powerful. Even this day, I'm telling you, 200 years from now, people are going to be talking about how Mary Kamau was one of the greatest leaders of the 21st century. And you want to be here to meet her and listen to her and take pictures with her and get your kids' pictures with her because this is going to be something that's going to be historic. You're going to look back on this as a powerful moment. Can I pray for everyone here? We are so thankful, God, for the opportunity to gather in a free country, to come together and worship with two billion people around the world. The gift that you have given us through your son Jesus prophesied 700 years before his birth in alarming detail where and what was going to happen. But God to us in this room, he's more than that. He's God with us, in the seat between us, behind us, in the car when we're going home, in our hearts and in our minds, drawing us to come back, drawing us to come back into the garden, into a relationship with him, and God, I just pray that you would help us to listen to your son with us.